to our true crime podcast don't blame the mom i'm hannah and i am kate welcome everybody i hope that you've had a lovely week yes exactly i have myself we've had a very lovely um i say i think productive kind of day today i would say haven't we we well we've certainly tried well (laughs) exactly we've attempted to anyway a lot more productive than we normally are um at this point on a friday that is so true we Mm -hmm. today have been to the bank because we are planning on hopefully starting our Patreon as soon yes, as possible. Exactly. Um, so we are now joint bank account holders. Oh, <laughs> I know. I think we're, we're, we're like a happy couple. <laughs> oh, happy dysfunctional couple. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> we have had lots of really lovely messages, um, especially over the last few months, asking when we are going to do our Patreon and stuff like that. So we are working on it. It's just really about time. So um, in answer to any of your questions, we are absolutely working on it it's it's going to come it's in the pipeline um so watch this space basically yes we are yeah as you said and Mm -hmm. so people have been asking about merch as well yes and that is really exciting that you guys are like interested in that so we are looking into that we have if you have any ideas actually of what kind of merch you might like Mm -hmm. 100% let us know send us send us messages we love your messages we love getting messages um you know we do. especially because you're also nice yeah <laughs> um, so thanks for that exactly but yeah if you have any ideas of what kind of merch you might like or even if you have any ideas of what kind of merch you think like you know designs and stuff yes let so, us know exactly we have a lot of exciting plans for 2024 so um yeah watch this space guys but other than that we also managed to fit in a lovely lunch at our favorite pub didn't we we did <laughs> we went down to our favorite pub our favorite pub which is also levi belfield's favorite pub when we've mentioned this before i go that we go there a few times a week at least um they have the best thai food randomly they have a thai kitchen in the pub but it's just the coziest like nicest british pub isn't it it's so lovely and that type that thai food there is just it's just the best they're so so good so yeah we did that and uh and now here we are having a cheeky drink of a friday afternoon ready to record another exciting episode for you absolutely and i'm using my brand new water bottle which has a uv light in it to clean the water that is so okay complex and i know i mean now we're not sponsored by lark but if they would like to sponsor (laughs) us i like your water bottles so So, that is very cool i mean i'm just i'm a brita filter kind of gal shove it in the filter pour it in the glass bob's your uncle fanny's your aunt who's your aunt (laughs) fanny (laughs) fanny means a different thing over here in the uk to what it does in america (laughs) and we'll let you look that up for yourself it's a famous phrase bob's your uncle fanny's your aunt isn't it i don't know the fanny's your aunt part oh okay maybe i just maybe (laughs) that's an english thing maybe i just add that part in that's a hannah thing yeah and this is the last time we'll be recording for a few weeks because i'm off on my honeymoon in a few days time and i cannot tell you guys how excited I am to get some sunshine because it's been snowing here in London this week. Yeah. Um, which is lovely. I but mean, I love how she says snowing. The snow did not stick. It didn't stick because it's so wet and rainy here that it couldn't. However, the coldness, you can imagine, has been pretty draining. So I'm just excited to go on a beach and just chill and read all my crime books. <laughs> like the widow that I am. Hannah, she will be in the Maldives. <laughs> I will be in the Maldives, avoiding all the sharks. You know how we like 
like to give away our location. I do. So guys, if anyone wants to pop over to the Maldives, you know, I'll see you there. We'll have a cheeky <laughs> drink together. No, but I mean, it's nice because every time I go on holiday, it's when I can actually physically read a tangible book. I have been doing a lot of reading recently. I just don't have time to anymore. Like on a holiday, I can read maybe five in a week. Literally sit there and just will read. But when you're in London, you're doing different things and stuff. Reading them, you I just can't do. You, do you only read nonfiction books? Okay, this is I, this is one thing I always struggle with. What is fiction and what is non-fiction? So non-fiction might be something like um, somebody's biography. Or... Okay, yeah, I only read real stuff. Yeah, yeah. So you'll read like a true crime about somebody, yes. or you'll read like a biography of, of like somebody's life. Yes. Whereas I will read a lot of fictional books. I'm actually reading Cuckoo's Calling, which I've had. My mum gave it to me for Christmas. I'd say about three or four years ago. Whenever it came out, uh-huh. it is actually J.K. Rowling. But under a oh, different Harry name, Potter, which, which uh, I didn't realise. She has a, a pen pseudonym. name. A yeah. Pen name or pseudonym? Well, a pen name is like the name you use to write books, but maybe she has like a different pen name yeah, or pseudonym. It's, it's an adult book. Oh, okay. I, mean, I also consider Harry Potter an adult book because well, I, I mean, listen to it all the time. Scary when the Dementors turn up. I mean, Jesus. Uh, well, I just love Harry Potter. It should be an eighteen. <laughs> you know. But no, I'm reading Cuckoo's Calling, which I'm not finished yet, but so far, really enjoying. And Ooh. it is, and I didn't realise when I started it that it was J.K. Rowling's. May I just ask, what was in fact the cuckoo calling about? <laughs> it is about a guy who is a private detective. Okay. I, I, I mean, I talk about true crime. All I read is crime mysteries, fictional <laughs> or real. That's all I do. So it is. It's a fictional. Okay. He's a fictional character who is solving a case. Basically. Nice. Well, I'll uh, see if I can. Uh pick that one up on my uh, holly, tra- holly, tra- holly travel sugar I've holly just realised I have a gift for you upstairs <gasps> what yeah oh my god exciting okay I'm very excited about this okay I'm g- so we are recording two parts today so I'm going to give it to you before the next one okay I'm really excited <laughs> you're going to love perfect. it perfect amazing um, love a gift <laughs> yeah okay well I'll give it to you before the next one starts yay so I think we have oh my, my computer's turned off I think that we have a shout out yes yes we do Um, a big thank you to Jordan who sent a lovely message and she posted on our Facebook uh, don't blame them on Facebook group and she said she was listening from her ranch in Wyoming and I was like oh my god that is so cool Wyoming looks so stunning. beautiful I would love literally to go to Wyoming. stunning like do the you national have, parks there do you have a spare bedroom we're coming <laughs> we are we are literally there okay Jordan but she said that she um, loves listening to podcasts we're one of her new favorite podcasts and um and she even said we had nice accents oh I was like, thank you that's so nice to hear because like I said over here we do not get told that at all ever in fact it's quite the opposite so we have normal boring accents yeah, over here thank you so much jordan and we really really appreciate that and all those kind of messages are so encouraging and so nice to hear mm-hmm. because obviously we do this um because we we love it and um and because because we, we, we're weirdos i guess <laughs> no. <laughs> no because we are very interesting true crime but it's so nice to hear any feedback so thanks so much for that so on that note, I think we should dive straight into episode 47. Can I say, I feel like I do this no, you every week before <laughs> we get started. Last week's episode, so funny. We chatted so much. Oh, the longest episode of all time. I know. And actually, guys, I have put in timestamps to most of the episodes now. So if you are absolutely sick to death of our banter, and I don't blame you if you are, well, um, you can check now because on our episodes, there will be timestamps of when to just start playing as soon as we start talking crime. Crime time. It's timestamp. <laughs> crime time timestamp. So there you go. <laughs> Is that so what you named it? Crime any, time timestamp? Yeah, because I was just like, I need to like 
basically put an explanation of why I'm putting a random number. So I know there are a lot of people that like to skip or some people that don't. I know a lot of people do like to listen to the chat as well. But for those who don't, there will be a crime time timestamp. So you can just go straight to that, straight to where our episode begins. And we stop talking about ourselves like the arrogant people that we are. <laughs> Total narcissists. Absolute narcissists. <laughs> so on that note, I'm going to dive straight in. So it was December the 4th, 1972, when seven-year-old Stephen Stainer was waking his way home from school in Merced, California, when a car pulled up beside him and he was dragged inside. In that moment, his whole life was about to change as he was ripped away from his family and friends by an evil paedophile who would spend years abusing and brainwashing his young victim. It was only when Stephen had grown too old for Kenneth Parnell that the pervert abducted a new innocent little boy to victimise. Determined to not let another child's life be destroyed, Stephen decided to bravely take this opportunity to finally escape. With little Timmy White by his side, he flees into the night, saving them both in the process and becoming an overnight celebrity and America's new hero. He was reunited with a family who believed they'd never see him again, including his brother, who little did the Stainers know was hiding many sick, murderous thoughts from a very young age. Today's case takes so many shocking twists and turns, including incredible heroic moments and utterly tragic twists of fate. This is episode 47, Stephen Stainer. Stephen Gregory Stainer was born on the 18th of April, 1965 in California. He was the middle child of five children to parents Delbert and Kay Stainer. So Stephen had an older brother, an older brother Carrie, older sister Cindy, and two younger sisters Jody and Corey. Stephen's father Delbert had been in the army in the sixties, and after leaving the army, worked as a mechanic at a local peach cannery. The family were raised on an almond grove or like a ranch in Snelling, California, which they absolutely loved as they were a really outdoorsy family. Mm -hmm. So alongside his mechanic work, Delbert also worked on the ranch. But after a bad year with the crop due to heat and irrigation problems, the family sold the almond farm and moved to nearby Merced, a small farming town known as the gateway to Yosemite National Park. Now, for those of you who don't know Yosemite, it's a stunning national oh, park in California. I have always wanted to go to Yosemite. I have been to Yosemite. Have you? Yes. <gasps> when? I, I, you always throw in these like secret <laughs> places that you've been. I'm like, are you like some sort of international spy? When do you find time to do all these things? When did you go there? <laughs> so I went, I think it was 2016. Amy and I went and we traveled. We did a little kind of tour for just over three weeks, I think, of California so we did like LA and then we went to Vegas, uh, nice. Nevada, but we yeah. went to Vegas, did San Fran. From San Fran, we went to Yosemite. And well, then... I bet you and Amy don't have a joint bank account, though, do you? Well, actually, myself and Amy <laughs> did used to have a oh, joint bank account. Damn it. So Amy and I pretended that we were a couple so that we could get the couple's <laughs> discount at our local very expensive gym. That is such a great idea, though, honestly. It was so funny. We went in and we said to the guy, we were like, can we get the couple's thing? And he said, well, the only way you can have it is if you have a joint bank account. So we said, all right, we'll be back tomorrow. And off we went down to the bank, opened a bank account. Why and got not? Our discount couple. Why not? 
Very funny. But Yosemite looks stunning. And I always, when I used to see it written anywhere, <laughs> I used to think it was called Yosemite. Yosemite, yeah, or Yosemite. something like that. Yeah, I yeah. always used to call it Yosemite. It was only when I started watching like nature programs on it and stuff, I realized it was Yosemite. It is one of the most beautiful places I've ever okay. been in my Another life. Another place we have to go. 100% if we get to go over to the to America at some stage, we must do we a will. visit. We shall go. When we go to America, we will do a visit of Yosemite. Yep. It is unbelievable. Um, so... Hold on, now where was I? I digress. I digress. So Stephen had a very normal childhood growing up around Merced. He was a real outdoorsy type of child and he loved things like going fishing with his dad. That was like the thing that they used to do. And I think there was even a thing about how when they would go fishing together, Stephen was such a chatterbox that his dad used to say he was scaring away the fish. Oh, and I thought it was really cute. Yeah, that would so be us as well. No oh, fish coming near that boat. Those fishes would be out of there. Fishes migrating for not just for the winter, for the whole freaking ten years. I like the way you pluralize fish to fishes. Fishes. <laughs> so Kay worked part time in a children's nursery, and the rest of the time she was a homemaker mom who doted on her five children. Now, she obviously adored children as not only did she have five of her own, but she also worked with children. Mm. So the family lived in a nice, quiet neighborhood, living on a street where everyone knew each other and there was lots of other children of the similar age groups who all played on the street together every day. And that mm. kind of reminds me of me growing up. Like, there were so many of us who lived in my area and it was a quite, it's a quiet enough area and you could go out and we could play, we'd get on our bikes and literally you'd go off on your yeah. bikes for the day. And as long as you were home Being in the street, Being a kid in the eighties was great, wasn't it? So much fun. Cause like we, I was never like me and my sisters, like, I'm one of five girls. We didn't get to like sit in watching telly or no playing way. like, I don't know, iPads. They didn't even exist then or mobile phones. It was like climbing trees, yeah. getting muddy, yeah. like literally like, building, building tree houses. Yeah. We'd even like do this weird thing where like, if it's a windy day, we'd get these plastic bags to take off in the wind and then chase them down the street. Like <laughs> any, we were very resourceful as children. Anything so, was a game. Actually like you, cause you used to live on a hill. I also live on a, on a hill as well. And we used to make go-karts. And, so cool. But like out of the recycling bins. Yeah. But and then, I don't know if you what, what other people have, but ours were like, there's like open, like a box, basically yeah. like a rectangular box, but a plastic one. And we'd put it like on a skateboard or something, or like even one of the dads used to help us like screw, like... God, it sounds screw, dangerous. Like, <laughs> so dangerous. How is, honestly, any of us alive from the I 80s? Know. Like, screw it, like we'd, like we'd screw wheels onto these things and we'd sit in them with either we'd just push them or somebody would cycle Mm -hmm. and we'd attach them by a rope to the back of the bike and we'd just cycle down the hill up and down up and down and like entertained for hours but I feel like kids were so much more interactive those days and obviously much like Stephen's family and when he was child as well like that kind of running around with the neighborhood kids and actually doing things actually building things and being outdoors people knew who you were because they knew you'd see you out in the street you had like a little squad going on a little crew yeah like that's an and Aiden's child or, yeah. you know that's Jan's daughter or whatever yeah. like they'd know who you were god we are very much digressing already come on guys focus <laughs> so right so they out in the streets every day as, as I was saying kind of everybody like knew all the kids all knew each other but on the 4th of December 1972 a then 7 year old Stephen was making his usual walk home from school when he was approached by a, ma- a man by the name of Irvin Murphy it was a cold and rainy day and met, and his mum, Kay, had planned to collect Stephen from school, but she was delayed picking up something from the hardware store for her husband, Dell. However, it was not unusual for Stephen to walk home from school and so not really expecting his mum to come and pick him up, mm. he left school and just began the normal walk home. 
Murphy approached Stephen and told him that he was collecting donations for the church. And after a brief conversation, he wondered if Stephen's mother might be interested in making a donation. So Stephen thought that, he's seven, bear in mind he's seven. Of course. Stephen thought that yes, probably his mother would like to make a donation. And when Murphy offered to drive him to his family home to ask the mother, Stephen accepted the lift. Oh, bless him. So once they reached the car, which was a white Buick, Stephen met Kenneth Parnell, who was driving the car. And this would be the first time that he set eyes on Kenneth Parnell. Parnell and Murphy had become friends as they both worked at a lodge in Yosemite National Park about 70 miles from Merced. Parnell was a convicted sex offender and he used his friendship with Murphy to persuade, maybe slightly manipulated Murphy into helping him abduct his next victim, a young boy. Parnell told a gullible Murphy that he was looking to become a minister for the church and looking for this young boy in order to raise him, and this is a quote, in a religious type deal. Mm. So those who knew Murphy well said that he was not the sharpest tool in the box, far too naive and trusting of people that he met. Parnell instructed Murphy to hand out religious leaflets, homing in specifically on young boys on their way home from school, all under the guise of seeking these donations for the church. So the standard children, like many, like you and me, were Mm. brought up to be polite and respectful of their elders. And Kay, Stephen's mother, says that she believes this is the reason why Stephen trusted and got into the car with Absolutely. Parnell Again, he's a seven-year-old boy. Mm-hmm. It's an adult. They're saying it's something to do with church. What else are you going to do? Yeah. That of course. A hundred percent. Like, he, bless him, it's just too young and too naive to know that Yep, and it's the seventies. So we're all teaching them the things in the of 70s. respect to elders. Do as yeah. you're told. But it's... also, they're not they're not aware yet that um, serial killers exist. For mm. a start. I mean, you know, not saying that he's a serial killer, but they're not aware of the dangers because we they did not have social media or it wasn't reported on the news. Um, serial killer, the phrase I don't think it was even coined until, until the, the end of the seventies. Yeah. So this was all very very. Um, you know, normal standard kind of thing for a child to do: get into the car with the adult and get driven home. Exactly. So poor Stephen got into the car with the two men, believing that they were headed towards his family home to speak to his mother about this donation for the church. Once they drove past the end of the street where Stephen lived, Yosemite Parkway, which Stephen pointed out to them, Parnell told him they were going to ask his parents if they could hang out with him for, for a little while. Parnell pretended to call Stephen's parents from a payphone, telling Stephen his parents had agreed. So Parnell then drove Stephen to a cabin that he was staying in in Cathy's Valley in Mariposa County, which is about 25 miles from from Merced. Once back at his cabin, Parnell told Stephen that his parents had agreed that Stephen could stay the night with him in the cabin. That night, Parnell molested Stephen, and that was to be just the beginning of the sexual assaults that Parnell would inflict on Stephen. When he didn't drop him home the next day, Stephen questioned him. Parnell told Stephen that his parents could no longer afford to look after him and agreed to allowing Parnell to adopt Stephen. He told Stephen that he was now his father and Stephen would be changing his name. His new name was Dennis Parnell. And this was the only name that he should answer to from now on. Initially, when he didn't arrive home, Kay was not worried. She thought that he had gone to a friend's house to play. 
So only a few weeks prior to this, Stephen had been in trouble with his parents for calling to a friend's house on the way home from school without telling them first. So although he'd been in big trouble for this, Kay still assumed that he had broken the rules again. But when Stephen hadn't arrived home by 5pm, Kay called the police. To begin with, the police too were not worried as they assumed that Stephen was at a friend's house. But when searches for him turned up empty, unease began to grow. So who were these two men who snatched young Stephen off the street and away from his family and life as he knew it? So Irvin Edward Murphy, like you said, he was an acquaintance of Kenneth Parnell, but a very new kind of acquaintance. Murphy would actually later claim that he had no idea his new friend Parnell was at this point already a known and convicted child rapist. They'd only met together whilst working at that resort in um, Yosemite National Park, the Yosemite Lodge. And like you said, those who knew Murphy, they described him as a very trusting and kind of a little bit of a simple minded kind of man. Mm -hmm. He was very much the sheep to Parnell's He was very much the sheep and he was following Parnell. He was following his instructions. He kind of thought Parnell was kind of the, um, you know, he's a more dominant type of character. And he was going along with basically what this new guy who was quite dominant, very, very manipulative. He kind of went along with everything that he said. And he genuinely, he said and always stuck to believed that he genuinely was going to be a minister and raise a child in that religious kind of way, kind of deal. However, it still does not make any excuse for snatching a child off the street and from his parents, regardless of what you thought it was for. But um, he does claim he doesn't know it was for sexual purposes. So this is how Murphy described it to law enforcement down the line. He claimed he knew nothing about the paedophilic tendencies that Parnell had, or that this was the real reason that Parnell wanted to kidnap and abduct a child and keep him for good. Now, Kenneth Parnell was born Kenneth Eugene Parnell on the 26th of September, 1931 in Amarillo, Texas. I love that song. Is this just the that- way to Amarillo? <laughs> <laughs> it's the only other time I've ever heard that name. Yeah. <laughs> so he was born to parents Cecil Frederick and Mary Olive Parnell during the region's Dust Bowl era during the Great Depression. So what is the Dust Bowl era, you might ask? I I do ask. Well, the same, because I had to find out myself. (laughs) So the Dust Bowl era was the result of a period of severe dust storms that greatly damaged the ecology and the agriculture of the American and Canadian prairies during the 1930s. And the phenomenon was caused by a combination of natural factors like severe drought and human factors like a failure to apply dry land farming methods to prevent wind erosion, most notably destruction of the natural topsoil by settlers in the region. So the drought came in three waves in 1934, 1936 and 1939. So the Dust Bowl era has been subject of actually many cultural works, including John Steinbeck's 1939 novel, The Grapes of Wrath, along with many others. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, anywho, Parnell is born during one of these eras, and he later moved with his mother and his sisters and a half-brother to Bakersfield, California, where his mum, Olive, ran a boarding lodge. He had problems from a very, very early age, and psychologists had said that he needed help. Parnell was raised mostly without his father, who abandoned the family when Parnell was six, and his father, Cecil, died in July 1972 in Denver. After his father left the family, a young Parnell was in and out of juvenile custody for stealing cars and arson. And in 1951, he was arrested for raping a young boy. And here we go. 
impersonating a police officer mm. and sentenced to four years in prison. So Parnell had lured the child by tricking him using a deputy sheriff's badge that he'd brought at an army navy surplus store. Why are they are they just selling that stuff? No, there are people who clearly use those things for bad purposes and but with bad intent. Why do you need a real one? You know know what I mean? Like if if you're like dressing up, you buy a fake one. Exactly. You never need a real one. Nowadays you just go on Amazon and get some budget thing, but people wouldn't fall for it. But never nevertheless, he bought one from the Army Navy surplus store and this is what helped him trick the little boy. So already we can see that his MO is I mean, already starting. You could starting. trick a child with a bloody fake one too. You, you could, but clearly, I mean, they're selling them left, right and centre. Yeah, you could have me as a child. Maybe children are smarter these days. <laughs> <Yeah>. True. <laughs> so Wiley Parnell managed to escape from a state institution in Norwalk, but he was actually recaptured quite quickly after. And in a 2000 interview about this sodomy charge he received from this molesting this boy, Parnell said he kidnapped and molested the boy because, you're going to love this, Am I? Well, no, you're not. You're just going to be like, oh, his wife was pregnant. And so he had to, quote, find another outlet for himself, end quote. I cannot with these men. Are you joking me? Because she was pregnant, he had to find... It's like men who cheat on their wives when they're pregnant because, oh, she wasn't really interested in sex But he's saying he gets to molest and kidnap a little boy because his wife was pregnant. I mean, you can't even make this up, honestly. So, yes, and I did say wife, as Parnell claimed to have been married, not one, but three times. However, only one official record of his marriage officially is known from when he married 15-year-old Patsy Jo Dorton in 1949. So this was two years before that first arrest. Together, they had a daughter in 51. That's the same year that he raped the little boy. And they later divorced in 1957. I should bloody hope so. Yeah. So now already we can see, despite the fact that he is a married father of two, he is a sexual predator. He was a clear danger to young children. And we do know from other cases that many child abusers had also been abused themselves as children and will then go on to continue the cycle of abuse. But it doesn't mean that every person who was abused as a child becomes an abuser. They absolutely Absolutely do not. not. But it's quite prevalent in... um, you know, abusers, prolific abusers, that they did have it in their childhood as well. Um, Parnell denied being sexually abused himself in that same interview in 2000, although a book on his case that was later written by Mike Eccles, uh, it's called I Know My First Name Is Stephen, claims that he was in fact molested at the age of 13 by one of the boarders in that rooming house that his mum owned and ran in Bakersfield. So whether whether it was true or not, who knows, but it would kind of make sense as to where his tendencies may have come from. Mm-hmm. More than 10 years after the sodomy case, Parnell was convicted of armed robbery in Utah. While in prison for discharge, his wife was filed for divorce. His wife filed for divorce, sorry. Parnell claimed to have married a third time in 1968, but there's no record to substantiate this. And it was a few years after this, as he went through several menial jobs, that he ended up being hired to work at the Yosemite Lodge as a night auditor, which is an employee who works on the hotel's reception at night. So it's now called Yosemite Lodge at the Falls. It's often referred to um, as a nickname within the National Park. They just call it the Lodge. Mm -hmm. It's located in Western Yosemite Village in Yosemite National Park in Mariposa County. 
and it's very close to Yosemite Falls. It's absolutely stunning. The I pictures. think that when so obviously I was driving when we were over there, and I'm mm. pretty sure we drove past it to get That's into Yosemite insane. because we stay we stayed in Yosemite Valley in the tents. They have like wow. purpose built tents there yeah. that are on little stilts. Amazing. They have like camping grounds and stuff as well. But I think we drove past it. Wow. Mm. So it was here after meeting the impressionable and easily led Edwin Murphy that Parnell began to weave a web of lies, pretending he wanted to work as the minister and actually it was secretly in order to get this guy to agree to kidnap a little boy with him thus how Stephen came into Parnell's evil clutches so Stephen instead of being driven to his own home like he thought he would that day was driven to that cabin in Kathy's Valley and in an unbelievably sad coincidence this cabin was located just several hundred feet from his maternal grandfather's house I hate these types of things it's so sad it just like it's gut wrenching, isn't it? Of course, it? especially like, in hindsight. So when people were and yeah, eventually looking for him, him, his granddad was obviously so close to him during Awful. this ordeal, and neither of them knew no. about it. So after this abduction, a very confused and very scared Stephen, you know, was driven 38 miles away to Mariposa County. And Parnell was really brazen. Like he didn't travel that far away at all, considering Stephen was now a missing child mm. and people were now looking for him and would have recognized like actively him. Looking he for was him. actively looking for him. And there was, you know, searches out for him. There was posters going up. But Parnell was just brazenly, you know, staying within 38 miles of, of where the abduction happened. I mean... That maybe I'm being no actually I was that, what I was going to say was really stupid because people there was loads of cars and people were mm-hmm. moving around the place a lot yeah. at that time so it is really brazen it's extremely brazen and it's it kind of like it shows the arrogance of Parnell already and how he feels that but he's he clever enough to but he didn't get caught because of that no not yet so now Parnell has his young victim behind closed doors and he subjects him to a long traumatic ordeal that would last seven years. He first set about changing Stephen's appearance by dyeing and cutting his hair and changing all his clothes. The first night, like you said, was an absolute nightmare for Stephen and an indicator of how his life with Parnell would be from now on. Parnell wasted no time to satisfy his sick urges and molested Stephen the very first night at the cabin. And that first week, Stephen said he spent the whole time crying and telling Parnell how much he wanted to go home. And Parnell just kept saying, you know, I've been granted legal custody of you. Your parents can't afford to have so many children and they don't want you anymore. So this is what this boy is being told over and over and over again in his time of need. And he's got no one else to say, no, he's lying. You know, that's not true. All he knows is this adult is telling him this over and over again it's brainwashing of course it is he also claimed that a judge had given him legal custody of Stephen, and now he'd be called dennis that wouldn't even mean anything to a a child no but he's only seven his brain would be so malleable and so Mm -hmm. like a sponge at this point so you can imagine like hearing those words said about your parents at that age is just it's absolutely how and he must have felt he had nobody to turn to so confused so terrified and also in a great deal of pain because he was being physically abused as well as mentally so the sexual abuse escalated and 13 days later on december 17th parnell began to rape stephen he just endured absolute you know mental and physical torture on a daily basis and this is all while he's constantly being told nobody wants you and this went on for years Stephen later claimed Parnell's attitude towards him went from severe beatings to sometimes absolutely spoiling him. So it's very confusing and very convicting for him. Very gaslighting. And it's a very typical trait of an abuser, Mm. which is showing your love and showing uh, and being rid of and then taking it away. And then it's it's leaving your victim just 
in the hope that you'll get a little bit of love back again mm-hmm. and you're you're relying on that time when it comes around and when it does then you're so, so grateful, grateful for it yeah. and it is very it's like in abusive relationships it's mm. the exact same thing and this was also part of the brainwashing that he was you know putting onto Stephen over and over again day in day out and obviously it started with stripping him of his identity taking his real name away he called him Dennis Gregory Parnell and Gregory was actually Stephen's real middle name and he also kept Stephen's real birth date too but that was it mm-hmm. did so, he know that his middle name was Gregory he did yeah but oh. but I mean it's a weird but, thing to know. But I suppose like obviously by the end of it, well we'll get to it. But I mean he was just this is what the name he went by and he listened to what he was told by Parnell. Yep. So it's also the guy that's keeping him alive. It's feeding he's feeding him, he's clothing him, he's giving him a roof over his head, and he's also letting him do what he wants. Less than a month after his abduction, Stephen was enrolled in a school under his new name. And after Stephen had gone missing, all these missing posters had been sent to all of the schools in the district. But unfortunately, they were never sent to Steel Lane Elementary, where Stephen had been enrolled. This is just by a bad twist of fate. So he was actually continually enrolled in various different schools over the next several years. So Parnell was moving from place to place. He wasn't stupid enough to set up routes for a very long period of time because he obviously was conscious that if people got to know them too well they might find out too much. Yeah, and moving means that, yeah, as you say, that people can't keep up with you. Exactly. So Parnell openly passed himself off as Stephen's father, and the two of them moved frequently around California, living in different locations such as Santa Rosa and Comchi. So Stephen actually made friends at some of the schools that he attended. And to anyone outside of the home, Parnell and Stephen, now known as Dennis, were just a normal father and son. His schoolmates had no idea who Dennis really was. Parnell would manipulate Stephen, maintaining a fine line between complete control and total freedom. And he eventually allowed Stephen to live without boundaries and convince the boy. He knew at this point that he would remain loyal because of the giving love, taking love, giving love, taking the love, um, giving him food, sometimes depriving him of food and then giving him freedom and then not and constantly telling him nobody wants you and you have nowhere else to go. And this is what Stephen believed. That's so awful. Yeah. And obviously his disappearance had a huge effect on his family. The Stainer family and law enforcement launched a massive effort to find Stephen. The aftermath of his abduction hit the Stainer family hard. They reported him missing when he'd never returned home that day. And obviously the police were informed. They posted missing person flyers everywhere and asked the public for any information. But nobody seemed to know what happened to little Stephen Stainer. It's almost like he just vanished off the face of the earth. Back at the Stainer family home, his parents were besides themselves and just devastated at this sudden appearance. Disappearance. Disappearance. (laughs) His mother, Kay, would never leave the house unattended just in case Stephen would call home. That's so awful. His father, Delbert, would search soil that appeared freshly dug up or pursue any strange-looking vehicles he saw on the highway, desperately hoping to find his missing son. His parents and siblings were tormented with thoughts and questions of what had happened to him on that December day. And his siblings were kind of feeling like their parents were always preoccupied with finding Stephen and naturally this made them feel like they'd taken a back seat as their parents were constantly talking about Stephen, looking for Stephen, their whole world was revolving around Stephen and yet these other children and how, of course, of course, because you're missing a huge part of your family Mm. and you don't know whether he's alive or dead. He might come home. He might not. They had no idea. And so 
back at home, all of these other siblings were feeling the repercussions of that whilst missing their brother themselves. So from a really young age, living up with Parnell, Stephen was allowed to drink alcohol and eventually to come and go basically as he pleased whilst Parnell was moving from one odd job to another. Some of his work required him to travel and he would leave Stephen unattended. This is something Stephen later reflected on as an adult, saying he could have easily used these opportunities to flee, but he had no idea how to get any help and he believed nobody wanted him and nobody was looking for him. And let's not forget, Parnell is the only person he'd known since he was seven at this point. So it's the only stability he had. He believed his parents didn't want him and had abandoned him and he didn't know anything else. He'd grown oh, yeah. up only knowing bad things about his parents and that they'd left him. Yeah, Parnell had created the perfect narrative. Completely. One of the few comforting positive aspects of the life Stephen had was that Parnell gave him a little dog that he received as a gift from him when he was just seven. The dog was a Manchester Terrier and he called it Queenie. Mm -hmm. And the dog had actually been given to Parnell by his own mother and she wasn't aware of Stephen's existence at all during the whole time he was being held by Parnell. Mad. Unbelievable, yeah. There was a period of around 18 months when Stephen was about nine that a woman named Barbara Mathias moved in with Parnell and Stephen. Now, she did not come with nurturing maternal tendencies or to be a mother to Stephen. In fact, Stephen would later recall how Barbara and Parnell raped him on at least nine occasions together. How do these people need to show? I have no idea. Parnell also insisted Stephen help him carry out attempted kidnappings. But Stephen had always failed to grab the targeted child to the point where Parnell actually stopped asking Stephen to help him and actually would berate him for being incompetent. However, Stephen later admitted he intentionally messed up these attempted abductions to sabotage Parnell's plans and stop him from kidnapping another child. It was around 1975, when the three of them are residing in Santa Rosa, that Parnell enlists and instructs Barbara to help him lure another boy into the car. This boy had come under Parnell's gaze because he was in the Santa Rosa Boys Club with Stephen. Thankfully, this attempt at another child abduction was unsuccessful. And this Barbara, who was actually a girlfriend of Parnell's, later claimed that she had no idea who Stephen was. She only knew him as Dennis and she didn't know that he'd been kidnapped by Parnell. But I'm not really believing any of her story because she's out there actively trying to kidnap boys. And she was also actively sexually assaulting Stephen herself. Like even if she didn't think, like even if initially she thought Stephen was his, mm. once you've been asked to help kidnap a boy, do you not start questioning? And also why... Is that actually his and, child? Exactly. And why are you sexually abusing him yeah. with Parnell you know this woman is not a oh, good yeah. person besides all of that absolutely I mean, you know exactly there's like even thinking the best of her yeah why so, would you not question it the minute he starts saying can't be still another child so later they moved to Mendocino County California now here Parnell intended to set up another new beginning for himself and his captive but Stephen had grown out of Parnell's sick preferential age at that point because he liked his victims to be very young so at this stage, Stephen kind of had no choice. You know, he only had vague memories of who he used to be. He didn't know his name. Mm -hmm. He didn't, he, he, he was seven when he left. At this point, he's a teenager. He didn't know what his true identity was. And I only had fleeting memories from years ago. Mm -hmm. So he had little recollection of where he came from. No idea how to find his real family, who he believed didn't want him anymore. Parnell's his only guardian. 
and he's brainwashed at this age and he's actually got something called Stockholm syndrome apparently mm-hmm. as well. Oh, absolutely. Now, Stockholm syndrome is a condition or a theory that explains why hostages sometimes develop a psychological bond with their captors. It is supposed to result from a rather specific set of circumstances, namely the power and balances contained in hostage taking, kidnapping and abusive relationships. So this is also something that he is undergoing as well, or all of this. But his story is about to take a turn. And it was in an area called Ukiah, where another little boy would unfortunately be snatched off the streets, just as Stephen had seven years earlier. This incident would set off a series of events that would change his own fate forever. And it would finally give him the chance he needed to escape Parnell's evil hold he had over him. So by now, Stephen had been living with Parnell under the name Dennis for seven years. He had hit puberty and Parnell was less and less interested in him. And so the sexual assaults happened less and less often. So as Hannah told us, Parnell had tried to use Stephen as an accomplice in order to lure these new and younger boys in for Parnell to bring home with him. But Stephen had until this point still been purposefully sabotaging these efforts to kidnap any boys. Then one day Parnell came to pick Stephen up from school and he had a young five-year-old boy in tow. This boy was Timothy White, known as Timmy. Parnell has solicited the help of Stephen's classmate, Sean Poorman. He promised him money and drugs in payment for his assistance in kidnapping a young boy. So Timmy was from Ukiah, further north of San Francisco, and he, like Stephen, went missing while walking home from school. So on Valentine's Day, 1980, Timmy was playing in his parents' front garden when Poorman tried to convince him to get into Parnell's car. Initially, Timmy didn't want to, and he was kind of having none of it. He even grabs the chain link fence oh, and hangs God. onto it. He really tried. So, and, and um, Poorman has to physically pull him and rip him away from oh. that chain link fence and just stuffs him into the car and Bastard. they zoom away. So, when Stephen saw Timmy... He knew what life would be like for Timmy if he was going to be living with Parnell because he himself had already lived it. For seven years as well. Yeah. Years of abuse. He knew straight away that he had to do something to protect Timmy. He quickly decided he had to escape and he had to escape with Timmy. Yay. So on their first attempt to escape, Stephen and Timmy left the house together, but the weather was awful, like lashing rain and really cold. Timmy actually asked Stephen, can we go back? He was, he was just too cold and mm. it was just awful. So they went back. On the 1st of March, 1980, Stephen made his next attempt to get Timmy home. He made sure that they were both well fed and he made himself and Timmy a warm meal, then wrapped the two up in lots of layers just to keep them really warm. Then he and Timmy left in order to start walking to the main road and hitchhike the 40 miles to Ukiah. His only aim at this point was to get Timmy home. Stephen says that at first in his mind he was planning on returning to Parnell himself. That this was the only life he knew and he was so accustomed to it that he just thought that's where I belong. And the brainwashing and Stockholm syndrome. Mm -hmm. But then when they get to Ukiah... Timmy couldn't remember the way to his house. So Stephen looked up the police station address in a telephone phone book. And this is back when telephone phone books would be attached by a wire in a phone box. Oh my God. I actually remember those. So do I. So 
He then piggybacked Timmy to the corner of the street where the police station was and told Timmy he needed to walk the rest of the way to the station by himself. He stayed in the corner watching Timmy, but Timmy got to the entrance and was too scared to go in. Oh, he's only five as well. I know, he's so little. So that was the moment that really saved Stephen, a scared five-year-old being too afraid to go into the police station by himself. Stephen then made the decision that he would have to go in with Timmy and explain who he was. So once he explained to the officer on the desk who Timmy was, he then said, and I know my first name is Stephen. So that was a direct quote. So this phrase became the name of a book and a made-for-TV miniseries about Stephen's life. I'll go into that a bit later though. So police contacted Stephen's parents to tell them the news Initially, Kay was in disbelief. They wanted to go to Ukiah immediately to see Stephen, but the police told them to wait until after they'd finished interviewing him for the investigation. Crazy stuff, because these days, that just wouldn't happen. The police would not be allowed to interview a 14-year-old boy without some kind of parental or legal representation. Yeah, of course. The next day, Stephen and Timmy are even interviewed on the TV, and they're interviewed before Stephen even saw his own family. So the whole world was captivated by this unbelievable story. And in the interview, you see Timmy like sitting on Stephen's lap and they they seem super close. They're kind of like brothers almost. Yeah. And it's obviously a very short time, but you can see there's a really strong bond. And you see Stephen's like protective nature. It's like a trauma bond. Yeah. And you can see he really cared for Timmy and he was mm. protecting him. So finally, Stephen is brought home to the family who have been living without him for seven years. The family decide to throw a homecoming party in the streets for Stephen. There were friends, family, neighbours out in the street, outside of his family home, reporters everywhere. He was even introduced to his parents and siblings on the street in front of the TV cameras. That's so crazy, isn't it? Yeah. And you can even, like, he couldn't even remember his younger siblings' names because they had been so young when he left them. Yeah. Um, So the press were obsessed and Stephen and his family were hounded for interviews, photo ops. It's crazy to watch. Like, the real footage is in the movie, the TV movie, um, it's actually oh sorry what was it called again oh the, the TV my name is Steve my name is Steven. I know my name is Steve I know my name, name is Steven but that's sorry that's all uh, that's all actors but there's actually a docuseries on I watched it on Disney plus but it's um captive audience a true American horror story something like that it's called but you see the actual homecoming like oh. the real stuff of yeah. him arriving home so the day after he arrived back to his family home in Merced, he's interviewed by the press and TV camera right on the family doorstep. He's flanked by police officers on either side of him who are telling him as he's been questioned what questions he can answer and what questions he can't. Crikey. It's insane. So uh, I'm just going to go back a little bit. So obviously when Stephen makes his escape, um, he's totally unfamiliar with the city of Ukiah. And that's why he eventually, you know, he goes straight to the police with Timmy and like all these different sequence of events lent led up to him finally presenting himself at the police station and saying that very, very famous line, I know my first name is Stephen. It's an iconic line. It gives me chills. It literally does, same. And at first, the police thought he was just a young delinquent runaway. Here we go again. But Mm. after searching through old missing child posters, they realized that he really was a a very well-known missing child himself. And because they'd kind of like, his missing flies that had been like 
piled over with other missing children yeah, over the years and years. years. And it was almost like he'd been passed <laughs> off as he was never coming home. Like yeah. people didn't expect him to come back. His family hoped that he would. But well, we all know but, the first 48 hours. Yeah, they weren't, nobody was actively looking for him anymore except his family. So they realized this case was, it was absolutely phenomenal for a child to be gone for as long as he had and to actually be found alive. It's very rare. Because as we know, most child abductions usually end in murder within the first few hours. Mm-hmm. So is it like the first three hours? It is, is yeah. in like a very short space of yeah. time. And I wish I'd look this up, but I know it's in a very, very I small think we space of said time. It in a case like a week ago. Yeah. So as police dig further into Stephen's claims, they obviously see that Parnell is a convicted child sex offender. So during his questioning at the police station, Stephen actually first denies that Parnell had ever sexually abused him. He'd obviously been too embarrassed. You know, he's a fourteen-year-old teenage boy. He all he knew at this point again still was Parnell, and he obviously didn't want to betray him. He didn't know who to trust, who not to. And he's obviously embarrassed and and, and ashamed as well. Mm-hmm. But after the police questioned him, they find Stephen's unbelievable story, like fleeing from this abductor and the inspiring story of his heroic escape with Timmy. They realize that all of this is a huge, huge story. The press are involved, like you said, instantly before the family even turn up. It's unreal that that was allowed to happen it's actually insane but obviously it's also unprecedented because they'd never really had this kind of home unexpected homecoming that had never happened before and I suppose TV is also it's it's not new but it's relatively new it's relatively new especially with like news reporters and things like that you still don't have 24 hour news reporting at this stage no absolutely so they're they know that Parnell is obviously a predator and they are ready to find him so by daybreak on the same night that Timmy and uh, Stephen escape, March the 2nd, pedophile Parnell is arrested on suspicion of abducting both boys. And as he's being arrested, Timothy Y, or Timmy, who'd had a lucky escape, is also reunited with his relieved family, as Stephen is as well. So after seven years of pain, confusion, grooming, sexual abuse, and brainwashing, Stephen Stainer now has his real identity and his real name back. He's reunited with the family that had been missing him for so very long. And obviously, Stephen's parents had got that call they'd always hoped would one day come. His mum, Kay, later said to reporters, we expected him to come back. We had good faith and we just kept ourselves busy till that day came. Bless Kay. His father, Delbert, known as Del, said, I never stopped looking. Every time I saw a crowd on TV or a picture of a lot of people in a magazine, I always looked really closely in hopes of spotting my son. So now, by this point, when they're reunited with their son... They realize Stephen looks very different to a little boy who'd obviously walked out seven years earlier. He's gone from seven to now 14 years old. He's now a teenager. His voice is different. He's hit puberty. He's now five foot 10. He's a teenager. And yeah, that's really tall. Of course. And after returning to his family, Stephen actually had real trouble adjusting. He now had to adapt to a more structured household because living with Parnell, he was allowed to smoke, he was allowed to drink on a daily basis and he was allowed to kind of come and go as he pleased. So in an interview with um, the news just after his escape, Stephen said, quote, I returned almost a grown man and yet my parents saw me at first as their seven-year-old. After they stopped trying to teach me the fundamentals all over again, it just got better. But why doesn't my dad hug me? Everything's changed. Sometimes I blame myself. I don't know sometimes if I should have come home, would I have been better off if I didn't? Oh, no. End quote. So you can see the inner conflict and the inner turmoil and obviously the PTSD that this young man has suffered. Mm-hmm. 
So he would be questioning everything at this point and he has to relearn everything he knew all over again. And you can only imagine like what that kind of must do to your mind. So he did undergo a lot of counseling, um, but it only was brief, all different counselors, but very briefly. And after that, he never saw any additional treatment. He also refused to disclose the details of the sexual abuse details that he'd endured at the hands of Parnell. In a 2007 interview, Stephen's sister said her brother did not get counseling for long because their father said he didn't need any. She also added Stephen got on with his life, but he was very messed up. I mean, yeah, are well, you, like, I mean that's no surprise, is no, it? No shock there. Yeah. So Stephen tried to fit back into school life, but he was bullied really badly by the other children at school for being molested. And so eventually he ended up dropping out and he began to drink frequently and he was clearly self-medicating and it was obviously a coping mechanism for the trauma that he'd gone through. And this unruly behavior eventually led to him being kicked out of the family home. All the while, oh, no. the frosty relationship with his father remained strained. That's awful. So upon Parnell's arrest, the police checked into his background properly and they found he had a previous conviction for sodomy from 1951. So obviously they knew this was not this guy's first rodeo. They knew he was a sexual predator and reoffender, And it showed he had clearly remained a huge liability and danger to children from the first time he was arrested to the time they re-arrested him just now. Stephen's um, abduction and Timmy's. So in 1981, Parnell was taken to court and had two separate trials to be tried for charges of kidnapping, kidnapping, kidnapping Timothy White and Stephen Stainer. However, Parnell was not charged with the many numerous sexual assaults on Stephen or on all the other boys over the years as he had actually sexually abused other children besides Stephen as he moved from menial job to menial job. Now, this was because most of them occurred outside the jurisdiction of the Merced County Prosecutor, and some were by then outside the statute of limitations. I cannot stand that. Oh, I can't. So for those who are relatively new to true crime, a statute of limitations known in civil law jurisdiction as a prescriptive period is a law passed by a legislative body to set the maximum time after an event within which legal proceedings may be initiated. So when the time which is specified in a statute of limitations runs out, a claim might no longer be filed, or if it is filed, it may be dismissed, or basically it's expired and it's run out of time. So say if, you know, someone raped you 15 years ago, um, they're like, and oh, sorry, if you came 11 years ago, we could we could file charges, but the time's run out now. Yeah. That, that's basically what it is in, in, in layman's terms. Um, so the purpose and effect of statutes of limitations are to protect the defendants for a number of reasons, of which I'm not going to go into all of today, but you can Google it. But rape does come under the statute of limitations in the United States, as do, does child sexual abuse. However, murder does not. So even after, say, 30 years, a murderer can still be tried for their crime, no matter how much time has passed. But rape or sexual abuse cannot. It's that a shame. doesn't make any sense. It doesn't. But this statute of limitations was applicable in California and therefore Slippery Parnell managed to escape any charges for his many, many years of sexual crimes mm. against Stephen and other boys. So basically, um, the court case was being held in Merced County. The charges couldn't be laid there and those, those charges would already have expired. Um, but they hadn't in Mendocino County. However, Mendocino County prosecutors were acting almost entirely alone on allegations of sexual abuse on children that he had committed in that area. 
So these allegations hadn't expired there. They were within the right time frame, but the county prosecutors decided to not push forward on prosecuting Parnell for those sexual assaults that had occurred in their jurisdiction, unbelievably, as they were like, well, why are we the only ones that would push forward with those ones if that kind of county's not doing it? So they just went ahead with the kidnapping ones. So alas, he was found guilty of kidnapping and kid- convicted for these charges. And he received a sentence of, wait for this, seven years. I can't. Yep. So for everything Stephen went through all those years, he'd lost his innocence, lost his family, his life as he knew it, everything at the hands of this absolute monster. And it was only worth seven years. Like he's held captive for seven years Mm -hmm. and your man is given a prison sentence for seven years. But it gets worse as Parnell was let out on parole after serving only five years of his sentence. Of course he was. Yep. So not even as long as the years Stephen was kidnapped by him. It's it's crazy. How can you justify that his like his life was worth yeah. more than Stevens? And also they knew that he was a reoffender because he'd been doing yeah. this in the fifties, so he was true. doing it in the seventies. Exactly. That's the thing. He's not you know, you can't unteach a, a pedophile how to be attracted to children. You can't unteach a predator how to stop hunting children. That's something that's gonna always be in them, clearly. So it meant that this prolific paedophile and this child rapist, this abductor and just general danger to all children was eventually freed to act on his sick urges with impunity and Parnell was loose on the streets once again. Now, going back briefly to Edwin Murphy or, you know, Irvine Murphy, Irvine Edward Murphy, there's a few different names for him. I'm just gonna call him Murphy. Uh, he was he was convicted of lesser charges for helping to kidnap Stephen and he received five years imprisonment, but he was paroled after just two. And Sean Pullman, who was Stephen's school friend that had actually um, abducted Timmy mm-hmm. White, he um, also claimed that he knew nothing about the sexual assaults that Stephen endured at the hands of Parnell. Um, and he only received a term in a juvenile work camp. So he didn't get a very, it's more like a slap on the wrist, really, isn't it? If you think about it. I think those juvenile work camps, I think like it was a, it's like a, like he is held, like he's held there. Like he's not yeah. able to just walk out the door. No, fair. So Stephen actually later recalled the kindness of Murphy, who was, you know, the man who first got him into the car that day. Stephen actually referred to him as an uncle and that he'd been kind and some sort of a comfort to him whilst they'd both been under the influence of manipulative Parnell. Now, Parnell was clearly able to achieve a very highly sophisticated level of manipulation. And and that's what he practiced throughout his whole life on children and also on adults Mm. around him. And clearly he wasn't stupid. He was a lot of things, Parnell, but he wasn't stupid. He was obviously quite smart and good at convincing people to do things for him. So it seems that that's how he used these tactics to manipulate people. Um, And it's a very dangerous trait when you combine them with a someone who has paedophilic tendencies as Parnell clearly has or any kind of deviancy exactly so Stephen actually did say that he believed Murphy was just as much of a victim of Parnell's as he was as well now Barbara Mathias the woman who'd moved in and also sexually abused Stephen with Parnell was never charged with any violation and she actually cooperated with authorities in both of Parnell's trials so she got off scot-free well that's just not right either. No. So Parnell had received a very lenient sentence in light of his serious crimes, which caused outrage to the people of America. Stephen's kidnapping and the aftermath prompted California lawmakers to change state laws to allow consecutive terms in similar abduction cases. And rightly so. 
Consecutive means one sentence served after the other, as opposed to concurrent, which means all the sentences will be served at the same time. Okay. So Stephen went on to meet Jodie Edmondson when he was 19 and she was 16 years of age. They met through mutual friends and married when he was 20 and Jodie was 17. They had two children together, Ashley and Stephen Jr. Stephen was a great dad. Jodie said he was a calming influence in the family and just loved to play and spend time with his children. Family had become such an important thing to him. He was determined for his family to have a beautiful life. It was around this time that author J.P. Miller contacted Stephen about writing a book on his life and making it into a miniseries. Both called I Know My First Name Is Stephen, which if you remember is what Stephen said to the officer at the police station when he escaped with Timmy. Stephen was happy to be involved with the writing of the book and the production side of the two-part miniseries. He even played a part in the movie. He played a police officer who is protecting Stephen himself, the young 14-year-old Stephen, in the scene where Stephen has his homecoming party on the street outside the family home. Stephen was 23 years old by this time and he was also studying part-time in the college in Merced in order to start a career in law enforcement. The movie was released on NBC over two days with part one showing on the 22nd of May and part two showing on the 23rd of May, 1989. 40 million viewers tuned in to watch it. But it shows how famous Stephen was at this point. His story was absolutely huge in America. That is an insane number. Mm -hmm. It's unbelievable. So the movie had a huge impact around the world and especially in Hollywood. Stephen's openness and honesty brought sexual assault and deviancy towards children into the open. The movie paved the way for people to discuss and talk openly about these difficult and taboo topics that were all too often brushed under the carpet or not talked about because the topics made people nervous, uncomfortable and embarrassed. It began the change in the narrative that the victim was not the one who should feel shame and hide away from their experiences, It was even nominated for four Emmy Awards. Wow. But once again, tragedy was to strike. No. Just the night before the Emmys. No, I actually honestly hate this bit so much. I know, it kills me. So on the 16th of September, 1989, Stephen was on his way home from work at a pizza place where he was a manager. He had bought himself a motorbike with the $30,000 he had had been paid for for the rights to his life story. So he would ride his motorbike home and it was about a 15 minute journey from his restaurant to his house. But this day, as he was making the journey home, a drunk driver pulled out in front of Stephen's bike, causing a collision. The driver did not stop, instead fled the scene of the crime. Fuck's sake. Stephen died on the scene after sustaining serious head injuries. The driver was later identified and arrested for his crimes. Stephen's funeral made international news as the nation had come to know and love him. 500 mourners attended um, Stephen's funeral, where Timmy White was one of the pallbearers. So a tragic ending to a tragic story that at one stage looked like it achieved its happy ending. Parnell was released from prison for the kidnap of Stephen and Timmy in 1986, after just five years of being behind bars. Um, Which obviously we've said, but makes me sick. 
So he spent his first two years living under firm um, parole restrictions. After two years, when his parole was up, Parnell moved from place to place, like he had done with Stephen. Needless to say, Parnell, who had again moved and was now living in Berkeley, had not miraculously changed his ways after serving his prison term. And in 2004, the police received a tip from a woman called Diane Stevens that Parnell was up to no good once again. Diane was a sister of Parnell's caregiver. Parnell was sick and receiving care for emphysema and diabetes. So Diane knew of Parnell's history and she approached police telling them that Parnell had propositioned her with money, $500, to get a four-year-old black boy for her. So very specific what Mm. he was looking for. And not only this, he also wanted a birth search for the boy as well. So this is a real, he's a real trickster, this mm-hmm. fella. He was thinking exactly what he needed to show if anyone questioned him. Is this your child? Yeah, look, I've got the birth certificate. I've got all rights, exactly. Everything I need to have, I've got. So he also told her that if she managed to acquire the boy and it all worked out, he may also require that she find him a young girl too. Diane told police she agreed because she was afraid that he would look elsewhere for help to get a child if she said no. But she immediately went to the police and told them about the deal. The police decided to work with Diane in order to catch Parnell in the act. They sent Diane to make arrangements with Parnell while wearing a wiretap. She got him to omit the plan on tape and then made the arrangements to get the boy in the birth search and bring him to Parnell. She arrived back to Parnell's residence again wearing a wire and first delivered the birth search for the sum of $100 as per their agreement. She told him that the boy was in the car and that she would now go and get him. Once she was out, the police raided Parnell's house and once inside, they found that Parnell had the remaining $400 on him to pay Diane. He had also purchased toys, colouring books, teddies. So creepy. For a child, very creepy. And more sinister still, he had child pornography, condoms and other sexual aids in the apartment this guy is a monster Mm -hmm. once again he was placed under arrest he was charged and sentenced to 25 years to life under california's three strike rule so this is because in california they have a three strike rule which means if you've committed a crime three times that's it you're done you're just you're good well you're not showing that you can be rehabilitated so that's it yeah you're in and you're staying there So you will probably all be glad to know that on the 21st of January 2008, Parnell finally passes away. He was 76 and it was determined that he died from natural causes. I really wish I could stop here on that piece of good news, but unfortunately there is more. In a cruel twist of fate, Timmy, who was rescued by Stephen and survived his ordeal with Parnell, later went on to become a law enforcement officer with a special interest in missing children. He worked tirelessly, tirelessly promoting children's safety and was deeply respected in the community. Timmy passed away from a pulmonary embolism on the 1st of April 2010 at the very young age of 35. So young. It's so frustrating. Um, so there are statues dedicated to Stephen and Timmy in both Aww. Merced, where Stephen was from, and Ukiah, where Timmy was from. I'd love to see those statues. Yeah, you're right. I would like to. 
So the one in Ukiah shows Stephen holding Timmy's hand and it's meant to depict the night that they escaped their captivity. Aww. The statues were erected to honour the two boys and give hope to the families of the missing children that they may still be alive and make their way home. Aww. Honestly, I mean, what really pisses me off about this case is I, I strongly believe in karma. Why did Parnell outlive his two young it's victims? It's so frustrating. It's like, how did this happen? Stephen went through so much and, you know, he was abducted. He came back. He became a hero and he, he starts to lead a normal life and then he dies he was killed by a drunk driver. It's just like the worst kind of ending for someone who was so brave. I know. And, for and went Timmy, so much. Exactly. And the same for Timmy as well. And is doing something to help other young children and people who've been through the same thing as him. But this case is actually, it's not a two-parter, but it does actually lead us into next week's episode. Because that was a crazy case with many twists and turns and ups and downs. But unbelievably, this shocking story does not end there because today's episode leads us into next week where we'll be diving into the life of another one of the Stainer brothers. Mm-hmm. And this time, it won't be a case of a hero saving the day. Instead, it takes an even darker and brutal turn into a world of abduction, murder and dismemberment. So join us next week when you'll find out that the Stainer family consisted of not only an absolute hero like Stephen, but unbelievably, we will see how the case flips to the total other side of the spectrum as we will be covering the case of Stephen's older brother, serial killer, Carrie Stainer, also known as the Yosemite Park Killer. So thank you so much for listening today, everybody. We hope that you enjoyed the case. Yeah, well, we hope you found it interesting. Interesting, yes. And um, let's hope some of those like statute of limitation laws and things like that, if there's any left, that they change. And uh, we'll see you for the kind of other link to this case for next week's episode. But don't forget to join us on Instagram, uh, follow our TikTok and our X and our Facebook page. Um, and just, you know, Please also, if you are listening to us on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen, please hit that little follow button. Um, yes. That's all really great for us. And if you can find the time in your busy schedules, rate and review. Yes, Five stars, five stars. Yay. Exactly, guys. So have a great week and we'll see you all next week for episode 48. Oh, there we go. See you later. <laughs> Bye. Bye.